you are to be concerned with Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hello! I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money A show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you This show is actually taking a little pivot. We're doing something new. Um, I'm calling it Breakdowns and Takedowns. And basically what we're going to do is I'm going to pick a piece of money media. So whether that's a song, a podcast, a book, a movie, a TV show, and then I'm going to take a friend or an expert and we're going to review and recap that piece of media. Largely, it'll be so you don't have to, or it'll be a... Something where it might need a little bit more explanation than the original creators gave it. So some examples include uh, Friday, we're doing an episode with celebrity book club host Chelsea Devantes, and uh, that is about the 2014 memoir hashtag girlboss by Sophia Amoroso. Chelsea and I lose our collective minds over this book um, and how much we disliked it. In future episodes, we're going to be taking down Dave Ramsey's latest book, Baby Steps Millionaire, which I've actually had to stop and start a few times because it's distressed me that much. Just wait until we get to the part where he talks about the Jews. Yup. We're going to be talking about the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We're also going to be breaking down Black Monday. So those are just a few episodes that are coming up. Uh, And in terms of Black Monday, we're also going to be explaining the true events behind Black Monday. Today's episode, I am so excited. Uh, So I'm working on something in my little TV career with an amazing writer named Claire Friedman. And in getting to know Claire, I found out that she is a former Goldman Sachs employee and that she worked at Goldman around the time of the 2008 recession. So naturally, I forced her to watch The Big Short with me. So Claire and I watched The Big Short a film she had avoided watching because it was too close to home. But for you, my lovely listeners, former Goldman Sachs employee Claire Friedman is going to tackle her real-life experiences in this area. If you don't know, The Big Short is Adam McKay's Mortgage Crisis Explainer dramedy. It came out in 2015. It stars Steve Carell, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, among other people, including Succession's Jeremy Strong, before he was everyone's favorite sad boy, Kendall Roy. That's right. Jeremy Strong's in this. So yes, this is just the first of our series breakdowns and takedowns that we're going to be doing every week for you guys. If you have something that you want us to review or rip apart, please email me at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. And me and a special guest will review it, recap it, rip it apart. We might even love it. Who knows? There are some upcoming ones that I actually really enjoyed. Uh, So yes, join us on Friday for me and Chelsea's review of Hashtag Girl Boss. But today's episode with Claire about The Big Short is a total delight. And if you didn't understand the mortgage crisis or the movie that was supposed to explain the mortgage crisis, The Big Short, after this episode, you will understand it. You don't have to have seen the movie to listen to the episode, although it does help. But if you just want to know more about the mortgage crisis or you want to explain by someone who was there, this episode is for you. Okay, now here's me and Claire chatting about the 2008 recession and Adam McKay's film, The Big Short.
Our guest today is Claire Friedman. Can you introduce yourself and give us your credentials? Sure. Uh, I'm a comedy writer, uh, a television writer. I've written for a couple of late night shows, including Saturday Night Live. And uh, before I worked as a television writer, I actually worked in finance and investment banking for five years. So I guess in terms of credentials for discussing what we're going to be discussing today, that's probably more salient than being a television writer. Okay, so what is your history with this movie? Have you seen it before? So, you know, I actually didn't watch it for many years because it was too PTSD for me. <laughs> uh, but I did watch it recently. And I would say that that is my history with it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Um, when it first came out, I was familiar with it. And um, I purposefully avoided it just because, uh, you know, it was stressful. Uh, when did you work on Wall Street? So I actually worked uh, at Goldman Sachs in the mortgages division from 2007 to 2012 and was hired by the very same people who uh, basically did a lot of the mortgage CDOs for Goldman Sachs and America. And I, when I started working there, I was like, this is great. I'm going to make a ton of money. Nothing can possibly go wrong. And then as soon as I got there, shit hit the fan. And I sort of wrote it out for five years before moving on. What was it like to be there afterwards while while it was a shit show? I mean, I would say for that entire five years, it was pretty much a shit show. I mean, there was definitely a lot of I was there for the time of like reacting to everything that was going on. So it was very clear that uh, the world economy was collapsing, that um, these bonds had been put into the world that were all defaulting. You know, we watched Lehman Brothers go out of business. We watched Bear Stearns go out of business. And it was it was sort of, I would say, like a reactionary time. So everybody was becoming extremely cautious. It was impossible to get a deal done um, in those five years in structured finance, which is the division that I worked in, there were constant like regulatory hurdles that were being put into place. And you were sort of just like following along and seeing, you know, everything was responding to new government initiatives, new internal checks and balances in order to, you know, make sure that these problems didn't keep happening. Oh, my God. So when you started working there, were you aware that there might be something wrong with these CDOs or these mortgages? <laughs> Well, so I actually didn't work directly in mortgages as the asset class, something called esoteric finance. So if you can believe it, there were things even more esoteric than CDOs. Basically, what we did was use the same technology that um, mortgage bonds use, which is sort of like collecting cash flows and using them for bond payments for other asset classes. They were called like whole business securitization. So if you had a company like Wendy's, you could um, take all the franchise payments that they make into corporate and Wendy's could issue a bond basically backed by those franchise payments, the same way you might issue a bond backed by uh, mortgage payments. And we did uh, film finance securitizations and um, other types of insurance securitizations. It's very yeah, boring what? and complicated, but <laughs> basically um, uh, we've lost 100% of your listeners. And for that, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> uh, basically, a mortgage bond is backed by the collateral of mortgages and like mortgage payments, people pay their mortgage um, and that money is used to pay down 
these bonds. And that same technology could be applied to sort of any asset class that sort of has a steady um, cash flow. And so I worked in the mortgages division doing um, bonds that used the same technology as mortgages for other asset classes. So it'd be like if Wendy's suddenly stopped being able, all the franchises suddenly stopped being profitable, that then their mortgage bond would fail. Right, exactly. Like if every, if it turned out that Wendy's was, and they have not done this, but if it turned out that they were poisoning everybody at every franchise or, and everybody stopped paying, then that's how that bond might go under. Um, Okay. But that hasn't happened. So please don't come after me, Mr. Wendy, or <laughs> any of the people who work there. Um, so that, okay, so that leads us into what exactly is going on in the film, The Big Short. So basically, the movie opens with a quote from Mark Twain. Every so often, there are quotes from men uh, about things that makes it sound really important. I was almost laughing that it was like a Mark Twain quote, which is that... <laughs> It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, which kind of sets the tone for the self-importance of the entire movie. But I will (laughs) say that it does really help you understand a lot of this stuff in a really digestible way, even though I was watching it with my partner who was still like, I don't understand this. Uh, And it does say something in that movie that I always say on the show, which is that a lot of this stuff is purposefully made to seem complicated by the way that it's spoken about when it actually isn't that complicated. Would you agree? I would agree completely. And actually, when I started working in this industry, I was handed multiple 500 page offering documents and told to sit down and read them. And, you know, I considered myself a fairly intelligent, well-read person. And I sat down with these docs and I remember sitting in Pinkberry with this stack of financial offering docs and not having a single fucking clue what was going on. And I was like, this is so complicated. How does anyone understand this? I felt so dumb that there was this whole industry built around something that I was basically incapable of understanding. And I spent many months trying to understand even the most basic nature of, you know, what was going on here. And it felt to me like the whole thing had sort of been designed to be overcomplicated. And in fact, on our team, we worked with um, like these PhDs from MIT called quants who did the math and like we needed math at that level to help Wendy's issue a bond it felt like maybe it was a little bit overcomplicated they mentioned quants in this movie uh they have a quant and uh they do a little fun <laughs> thing where they uh Ryan Gosling's character pretends that he doesn't speak English the quant and that his last name is Yang and that he's from China and then they someone so fun. <laughs> someone says that's racist which okay and then the quant himself gets to turn to camera because there's a lot of speaking to camera and say, I actually do speak English. My name's Jan. I uh, I didn't really win a, a competition on math in China. He just likes to make it seem like I only speak Chinese to seem more legitimate or whatever, which is like fine. It's a fine little way of showing that these people are fucked up and it's all smoke and mirrors. But it's also like, oh, boy. <laughs> 
when I was watching the movie, it, I feel like it was like leaning into that, like, oh, it's 2008. Everybody's like a white man. It's like so bro and tough. But like in my experience, that wasn't what it was like at all. It was like really diverse in terms of the people I was working with. And the people who made the most amazing bet, um, actually, there was a group at Goldman who uh, did incredible shorts and made hundreds of millions of dollars and not a single white man amongst this group that I'm thinking of. So I did think it was a little bit weird that the movie chose to focus on this one sort of type of banker and sort of glorify them, despite the fact that there's literally nothing glorious at all about what they're doing. They're just profiting off of the suffering of, you know, Americans and other people. Yeah, it was, it didn't get till the end, like into the whole idea of we're not heroes. These are not heroes. These are not your heroes, even though they are the main characters of the movie. And so sometimes a lot of movies with I would say a lot of movies with like white antiheroes, they'll get misinterpreted as like, oh, these people are actually like the smartest and best and and you aspire to be them, um, even though they're clearly like bad, but you don't really get into that they're bad till the end. And before that, the movie doesn't really do anything to let you to not have you relate to or like these guys. <laughs> No, I mean, come on, just because they said they're anti-heroes, they're clearly the heroes of the movie. You're rooting for them along the way. They come across as awesome. Like, yeah, it's sure, Brad Pitt. It's Ryan Gosling. Yeah, it's a bunch of hotties. Yeah, yeah. it's Steve Carell, who you love. <laughs> Remember you love him from The Office? Like, yeah. it's, it's that thing where the actor informs how you feel about the character. Yeah. So, okay, so basically what happened was this guy, Louis Ranieri, he started doing mortgage bonds at... Solomon brother, I think. And he, the whole thing was predicated on who doesn't pay their mortgage, right? Everyone's going to pay their mortgage. Nobody would ever not pay their mortgage. Um, And so he started putting all these mortgages together into bonds, right? Am I right? And then, and then the bonds, he was selling the bonds. This then made- Basically a mortgage. Yeah. I mean, a mortgage is like a small asset, right? It's like, some the value of one person's house. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have a big capital offering, you can combine a lot of those small mortgages into one big thing and then offer that out to the capital markets because no investor is going to be interested in buying off the risk of one random person's mortgage on their, you know, $40,000 house. Right. But but all of these mortgages together, it's almost it feels like diversified in some way. Yeah. And so, yeah, in theory, in theory, uh, and so <laughs> they try to kind of give us often in the movie, they try to give us this, this feeling of, of what the times are they, well, I wasn't sure. Why are they showing the twin towers then? Why are they showing Tupac? Why are they showing gay pride? Like, and my partner was like, it's because they want us to know time is passing. You see, they're doing like that. That's their Adam McKay's way of showing time is passing. Time is passing. The world is different. I kind of like that style, but yeah, it was a little bit like, you get it. It was around this time. Wink, wink. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so then we meet Dr. Michael Burry. There's this thing that it keeps, they keep saying it's unprecedented, but he opens by talking about how this has happened before, that this like happened in 1933. So is that? Um, presumably he's just talking about the Great Depression. I right. mean, certainly they weren't doing CDOs and synthetic CDOs right. in 1933, but I guess maybe he was, I, I mean, I'm not sure, but it sounds like maybe he was saying that people defaulted on their homes they around did. the time of the Great Depression. They did. So it, it's not that, I think that there's, it's saying, why do we believe as a society that the housing market is so secure and will always go up when we have 
clear evidence that that is not the case. And he was saying that like during that time, rates of fraud were really high. And so basically, he's sort of like this awkward outsider guy. He works for Scion Capital. He is sort of setting up that everyone thinks that housing is low risk. It's 2005, and he decides he wants to know what mortgages are in each mortgage bond, which I guess was not a thing anyone was doing. I guess not. Otherwise, this would have never happened. (laughs) Yeah. So when you were working there, were they looking into, were they doing mortgage bonds and CDOs and were they looking into like what was in each one or it wasn't like that? They were doing mortgage bonds and CDOs for sure and managing the positions that they had of mortgage bonds and CDOs from the like 2005. Um, I do think that there was People would not necessarily pay attention specifically to the underlying assets. People were relying on the rating agencies who were presumably assessing every single underlying mortgage. And then banks were thinking about other protections. So like thinking about sort of the average statistics on the entire pool of assets. So, you know, what's the average FICO score, which is basically like a credit rating? What's the average loan to value? So basically like how much debt is being issued versus how much actual underlying collateral exists. So in theory, those are all protections that are in place. But my understanding is that the rating agencies were supposed to be doing full analysis of the underlying collateral. Yeah. And we learn later on that they were not because uh, they go to to S&P, who's one of the rating agencies. They say, hey, you're supposed to be giving these ratings. You're giving AAA ratings to stuff that uh, is a B rating or like doesn't it doesn't merit that. And the woman, uh, Gloria, she says, or Georgia, she says, well, if we say that it has a lower rating, they'll just go to Moody's, which is another rating agency, their competitor, and they'll just get a rate there. So that is sort of like all of a sudden you see a kind of fall. And there's a few things like that where like they talk to Karen Gillan, this actress uh, who I love. They talk to her by a pool and she works for the SEC and she's supposed to be investigating stuff and, and making sure there's no financial fraud and, and making sure that, you know, there's some she's some sort of financial investigation authority. But then she wants to work at a bank. So she's talking about how she's moving over into working at a financial institution, even though she currently has a job where she needs to investigate financial institutions. So those are two things that come up later in the movie about like, there's actually so much in inbreeding and corruption in terms of like, this is just what what they do. This is what we do. And they keep being like, is this illegal? And they're like, no, it's just like what we do. And it's like built into the bread, you know? Yes. Is that what you, is that, is that? (laughs) I saw zero fraud ever in my five years working at Goldman, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't fraud happening from outside parties. And obviously the system was messed up and obviously the SEC was sort of asleep at the wheel and the people originating these mortgages did not care who they were like you know, giving these loans to and, you know, but I would say that, you know, should there have been anything that was really shady, it probably would have all happened before I started in 2007, because that's when it was the the aftermath was beginning, really. So definitely, I'm sure, you know, throughout the economy, all this bad stuff was happening. But I personally did not ever see anything like that, nor was I involved in anything like that. And even when we were doing fast food No, of course. Oh, my God. We're going to just have Claire goes to jail now. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I even mean, like I didn't see like I didn't see anything that even gave me pause at all is what I'm saying. So it's like which is sort of incredible, I think, given what was probably going on in the economy, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you got there, they had fired like in 2008, they fired everyone, right? So when I started my team, my like tiny team was eight people. And then by the next year, it was just me and two other people. So yeah. You saw it, all the firings. I saw the firings, yeah. And on the day that everyone was let go, where they show in the movie everyone leaving with their boxes, what was that day like? You know, that day didn't happen at Goldman as much as it happened at banks that completely went under, like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, where they literally were just like, everybody leave. Like, we would see 5% of the staff go at a time. And so you would see sort of one person from each area of the trading floor sort of pack up and leave. Um because Goldman actually did do a lot of short trading and did get a lot of this off their books before it collapsed. So they managed to weather the crisis. So you didn't see the same level of people leaving. And, and it was more of a trickle, I would say, where I was. Was it scary or were, did people uh, have, were people like crying? Like were people doing what they were doing in the movie? I know like at Lehman and Bear Stearns, there were people being like, I've been here 18 years, my pension. Like, were you seeing any of that? Uh... Not really. I think it was sort of just like a cynical group of people who had been through, you know, a lot of different terrible times in the economy. And I mean, there was sort of this belief amongst everyone that eventually you're going to hit like an economic downturn that you're not going to survive, you know, and that's just the life of being an investment banker. So I I feel like I know because, you know, people have been there for dot com and people have been there for long term capital. And, you know, every once in a while, there's some even if it doesn't uh, like sort of ripple through the economy me as intensely as it did for this one, yeah. it does ripple through the banking industry. So people, there's layoffs is sort of the name of the game in, in investment banking. So they weren't as naive, you know, as they're sort of portrayed to be in the way that like the average person was, you know, trusting and and more decimated by this. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think people were surprised at the scope of everything. Like, and also even just like at the same time, like the Bernie Madoff thing happened and everybody was just like, how is this all like, how is this happening? But I don't think people are ever surprised that, you know, the economy is cyclical and that every few years there's a pretty bad downturn. But I think this one definitely just was sort of shocking in in the scope of it. When you say Goldman was shorting, can you explain to my audience how that kept them out of trouble and what that means? Sure. I mean, I don't have all of the details of like what Goldman was doing, but I think there's a couple of things they did. First of all, I think the bankers and traders there were pretty smart and pretty early on, they realized that these assets were not going to be worthwhile, similar to the uh, heroes or antiheroes of the big short. And so they started to sell those assets off of their books so that they wouldn't hold them. One of the teams that that I worked with at Goldman, which in Goldman doesn't take tons of principal positions. So in general, they don't buy and hold things. They're not like a major bank like JP Morgan um, in that, you know, or like a consumer facing bank. So they had a position, they had a, a group that that did do a massive short position and basically bought like CDS on the monolines. So one player that was not mentioned, I felt like in the big short, you have like the banks, you have the rating agencies. There were also 
also these companies called like monolines, which were bond insurers. Oh, so they basically provided insurance. Okay. And uh, yeah, and they many of them went out of business or went bankrupt, obviously, because once people went to the monolines for their insurance, they could not pay and they went insolvent. And so there was a group at Goldman, for example, that bought um, insurance basically on the monolines. And when they started to go under that group made hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, or like, you know, just like massive trades on that. I don't know if this is proprietary now that I'm saying that. Loud. <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do to you now? Uh, I don't know, send me to jail, maybe? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it seems like nobody goes to, to jail for this. Oh, right? we'll get I into that. Like we'll get into that. <laughs> so, okay, that's wild. So who, who whose money was it? Like, who are they making money off of? Who 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 got screwed? Other banks, presumably. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really know who they were selling these assets to, but it was all moving around immensely in the economy. Wild. It seems like it's like, oh, all these places were so sure that they were right and they didn't protect themselves and blah, blah, blah. But that's like was not the case with Goldman. No, I don't think so. Interesting. Okay, so then we meet Mark Baum, played by Steve Carell. And he's a, he's got the leftist talking points. He hates injustice. He's worried about student loans. He's a good guy, I guess. And there's a lot of talk about Alan Greenspan, who uh, is blamed for a lot of this, actually. So he's worried. He's saying, like, you know, Dr. Michael Burry is saying, like, finding that all these mortgages are late. So he's actually looking at the mortgages, thousands and thousands of mortgages, and he's saying they're late, and he's saying that all the mortgages are risky, and he's talking about subprime mortgages. So what is a subprime mortgage? Basically, a mortgage that's not high quality. I mean, that's sort of the simplest way to say it. It's not a great, in, it's not a great investor, basically, an underlying at person who's um, taking out the loan on their house. And they don't have a good FICO score and all this stuff. So these, so these people are getting mortgages because basically in order to fill all the mortgage bonds, they need more mortgages. And so they're running out of mortgages to put into these bonds. And so they need to start giving out riskier mortgages in order to be able to fill them. And that leads to these things where they show this Jenga game and it's the triple A then the double A, then the A, then the the double, triple B, and then B, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. And these are the riskier and riskier mortgages. And basically, they're putting these subprime mortgages into these into these things that are then getting triple A ratings because I guess most of them are triple A. And that well, go on. Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that because basically what they're doing is they're taking a ton of subprime mortgages that all have low FICO scores and they're putting them into one pool of mortgages and they're tranching those mortgages, each individually, which would never receive a AAA rating, into assets that are capable of receiving a AAA on the assumption that they're not all going to default. So not all subprime mortgages default. So they were saying that, you know, if you take 100 subprime mortgages and you issue tranched debt, the people rated AAA are almost certainly going to get their money back in theory because not all of these mortgages are going to default. Obviously, when you're in a system where every single one of them defaults, the AAA is a joke and it's meaningless because none of them are actually AAA, you know, investors and, you know, products on their own. So can you explain what a tranche is? 
Sure. I mean, basically, it's just like um, a level of bonds. So each, you know, if you take a pool of bonds, and you want to issue bonds to investors, let's say you have $100 worth of bonds, maybe $10 are AAA of that pool of bonds, and they're the highest rated. And you know, they have a 1% coupon, which means that they're considered to be the least risky. So if you're an investor, and if you put $10 into that, you get like a, let's say it's 10%, yeah, you get 10%. $1 a year in interest. Yeah, okay, that's easier, right? Why would I make this difficult for myself? <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> I don't do math. No, I, I don't do math anymore. So basically, then you have the second, you know, tranche, the next $10, and those are double A, and they have like a slightly higher interest rate because they're a little bit more expensive, uh, a little bit riskier in theory. And so basically, the tranche is just like, you know, some amount of the whole pool divided into a certain type of bond that pays a certain interest rate. And the interest rates get higher as you get riskier. <sighs> okay. So that makes sense? I think so the bank makes more money because the interest rates are higher. Interest rates, the investor makes investor. more money because they're they're putting their capital into a greater risk. And as a result of, you know, taking on that risk, they get a higher payment. So then uh, Michael's like, I'm going to short the bonds. So when he says that, why does everyone think he's crazy? So basically his shorting something is betting against it. So if he says, I'm going to bet against the housing market and the housing market is AAA rated, then everybody thinks you're throwing your money away because you're basically buying a bond and paying to have a bond that you will only get paid on if, you know, all of these mortgages default, which people didn't think was a possibility. How does that work? What do you mean? How do you how does he get paid out? Because I, I, in one point in the interview he uh, with the bank, he says, can we do pay as you go? Because he he wants to make sure that he gets paid even if the bank goes under, which they laugh at him. But like, what does this mean? Like, how, how does this make him money? I think basically he's betting that these bonds will default. And as they start defaulting, they start paying him um, back his interests that he's owed on his um, CDS. So each one, interest. so each one, as each mortgage defaults, he gets paid out. Or is each bond default? As I'm pretty bond. sure he was shorting hold portfolios of bonds okay. and so instead of us like waiting for it all to happen at the end he was saying as they started to default he wanted to get paid so but and he won't banks at that time don't allow you to short bond, whole bonds that's like wasn't a thing you could short bonds then too like but you you wouldn't short a triple a bond right because why would you do that okay so he finally he gets he goes to a bunch of the banks they like let him do it but they think he's an idiot so basically I mean, I always say that Wall Street is gambling, but is this is just this isn't investing in anything. This is just gambling, right? Which part? <laughs> like he's putting it's just so hard to understand. Like he's putting money Him, in Michael saying, Burry's what Michael, Michael Burry is doing. Michael yeah. Burry is putting money in saying this is and then I get paid if this loses. But he's just yeah, betting. Yes. He's just betting. Yes, yes. He's betting based on some analysis he did. So it's not like, you know, he believes that he understands the way of the world. He's betting on his worldview. I wouldn't have said, oh, it's gambling when like pension funds bought mortgage bonds, not understanding what the underlying assets were. They have to make investments. And, you know, it, it was believed to be a safe asset. And they believed that they were getting capital in exchange for, you know, putting their money into an asset. But hedge funds, yeah, gambling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that's safe to say. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess you can't say, but like, how is this, how is shorting and all this stuff allowed? It feels like a game to them. Anyway, so then. Um, well, I think, no, here's the, here's a reason shorting is important. If you have, if you're an investor and you're 
too long some asset and you want to protect that you there are other trades that have to be available to you to reduce the risk of something on your books for example so it does make sense in theory that you can short something if you're holding some asset and you're afraid that you know it's going to go down you want to have some reward on the upside in the instance where that asset's devalued so there's instances for sure where it makes sense but then you get into this whole world of people shorting things they don't own and and that's where it becomes like a like a much riskier and I still don't 100% understand it. Like insurance on your own, on what you have in your portfolio or... So basically that, that, yeah. that even if your portfolio tanks, you make some money. Yeah. Or you can like, yeah, earn back some of it, you know. Wild. In that instance. Instance. So yeah. he's doing that. Then we uh It's hedging. It's hedging your it's bets. Hedging That's why it's bets. called a hedge fund. Oh yes. <laughs> hedge fund, hedging your bets. Literally. Okay. Yes. So then we meet we meet again Ryan Gosling's character, Jared Bennett. We meet him again. And um, he does the racist thing that we said. And then he starts talking about CDOs, which is collateralized debt obligation. He's talking about how those get repackaged. So can you talk about those a little bit, what those are and what, what the repackaging of those is? I mean, so I, we talked about like taking a lot of mortgage assets and putting them into a bond and issuing tranches from that. And then you take all those bonds and you sort of combined those into another bigger vehicle Mm -hmm. called a CDO and then you can tranche that. You can sort of keep combining things and then keep tranching it. So the segment with Anthony Bourdain is they they cut to him and he's um, chopping up fish and he's like, I've made, I've gotten all this halibut and it didn't sell because maybe someone uh, put out an article saying halibut has the intelligence of a dolphin and now nobody wants to eat halibut, whatever. Like, which is like, you know, some something comes out about a stock or a bond and people are like, I don't want it anymore. So then he was like, what I do is I take the leftover three-day-old fish and I put it in something and I make it a stew. Now it's not three-day-old halibut. It's actually brand new stew. So that's what he's talking about in order to explain the repackaging of CDOs that it's actually it's actually a new thing. So have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing and time consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work like You know, I was very committed to Mint and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, also has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances. You can collaborate on your budget. You can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. 
Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash badmoney for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast. Podcasts work very fast. And I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself which ones are actually worth looking at. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work. Taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Don't worry about it. I guess in this instance, that would mean, let's say you had mortgage bonds that people didn't want because they didn't think they were good. And you combined them all together and then you retranched that. People might think, oh, I'm interested in this. This is a new bond offering. Um, Maybe this is better than the individual underlying assets. Okay. This is interesting because it brings me back to the very beginning where they're talking about how banking was boring because it was just like helping people and nobody was getting really rich. And then now it's like, now there's all these things, right? Repackaging, tranching, all this, that is like, all of a sudden it is about making people rich. And it is about like selling something that isn't actually real. And suddenly people are making a lot of money on like kisses and promises. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think investment bankers want to become rich. Now? Well, yeah, before when Louis Ranieri started. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so that's... Back when the World Trade Center was there and Tupac and everything. Exactly. Remember that time passed, yeah. Just a little set. (laughs) And art, is there no... So let me... I was trying to figure this out. My notes look nuts. Is there no government backing (laughs) on CDOs? No. Okay. So the Treasury Department can't help you? No. I mean, it depends on what the asset class is. Like, there's government backings on things like, you know, Fannie Mae, Sally Mae. There's certain assets that do have government backing, but like a typical asset class like this, no, I think it's the government is not involved. Okay. So then we meet the Brownfield Fund guys, Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley. So they were saying that they took $110,000, turned it into $30 million, the two of them from investing and now they want to be able to like play in the with the big guys but 30 million actually isn't enough to do that. So then a fun thing happens where they they find Michael Burry's pitch doc on the table, right? And then Finn Whitrock, who plays Jamie Shipley, looks at the camera and he's like, this isn't actually how it happened. It happened because my friend knew this friend knew this friend. So to me, what stood out about that was that the true story isn't just like these underdogs find this thing. The true story is actually indicative of a lot of this, which is people already at this level of insider knowledge know each other and share knowledge. It's not like, oh, these two outsider guys who had $30 million, like they're underdogs dogs as as they're portrayed when they say when they look at the camera and it's like his friend knew his friend i'm i was like that's it that's the whole thing that's what's true is that you all already had connections with each other does that make sense <laughs> yes it makes perfect sense so i would never call somebody with 30 million dollars an underdog but they portray but them that, as yeah. that yeah. they portray them as like getting laughed out of the building when like in act- and then they're like youngins i feel like yeah they're like youngins who aren't like hooked into the system yet even though but yeah but the lie yes. is they well, are you know. yeah. so then they're friends with but it's much better 
order for a movie to find a pitch book on the table. Exactly. And that's the thing. And I'm glad that Adam McKay is like, that's actually not what happened. But it is. in the. the But by the way, nobody would leave a pitch book on a table in a lobby in a bank. That's the least realistic thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Right. It's like this thing that it's like the, the story. And this is the problem with a lot of these stories of like rags to riches is that it's actually not true. They already knew people on the inside. Like it's actually not this. We were just in the lobby at the right time. Yeah, they knew Brad Pitt. They knew Brad Pitt, who we're about to meet. Ben Rickard, who is a doomsday prepper. And he worked in Wall Street and he's gone off the the grid because he hated everything. Um, And he is kind of this uh, Brad Pitt-esque rugged guy that only Brad Pitt could play. So then everyone goes down to Miami and they find that all these houses are like 90 days delinquent. There's no nobody in them. There's tons of there's this whole neighborhood with uh, only four people living in the whole neighborhood. Uh, They meet this guy who they're like asking him about his landlord. it, It turns out the landlord put the mortgage under his dog's name. Then this guy has a family and he's like, hey, I've been paying my rent has my landlord not been paying his mortgage? And all of a sudden, these bankers are confronted with a real person, uh, one of the few people of color in the movie, um, which is a, a Latino guy. And then they are scared out of the neighborhood by an alligator in a swimming pool, which is so Florida. And and that's where I'm from. And that that is real. <laughs> that is realistic. So basically, like they are, tra- they're starting to figure out that all of these mortgages are not real and all of these uh houses are like 90 days six months behind on their mortgages and there's nobody actually in these buildings and a lot of the buildings aren't even built is that accurate Uh, yeah i mean i definitely remember reading about like whole development complexes in places like florida and vegas where these homes were built and you know nobody could afford them and they weren't actually living there and they remained vacant for many many years after this which is wild because I mean, it's just like we have a housing crisis and homelessness is about to rise incredibly in this film and then also rise again during COVID. Uh, and so like seeing these these places and I guess like Vegas and Florida, I'm wondering if if it's because Nevada and Florida don't have state income tax or I'm not quite sure it's easier to get like shitty mortgage. I'm not quite sure why those two states, but that would be my guess that there's less rules. Obviously, there's no rules in Vegas and there's no rules in Florida either. So my partner says Florida's laws are a light suggestion. <laughs> so that was really where you start to see it affecting real people. So then we meet a realtor who says, you know, a lot of these people are selling their homes for a lot of money. A lot of them are unemployed. We're starting to see cracks in like the economy where people are getting fired. We meet uh Schmidt from New Girl and this other guy and they're talking about how (laughs) they do a lot of their sales of houses to immigrants who don't understand the paperwork and strippers because they have a lot of cash. And then we get a scene in a strip club with Steve Carell and basically they're explaining that they're these guys are are telling on themselves. They're like, why are these guys telling us all these illegal things they're doing or shady things they're doing? And they're like, no, they're bragging because they're making a lot of money, which I think it was in the trailer. But so then the stripper is realizing that she could get, Steve Carell is telling her that she could get a 200 
8% interest rate, 300% interest rate. And then she reveals she actually owns five homes and might have two loans on each home and a condo. And he then it smash cuts to him being like, there's a bubble. There's a bubble. So that's what we're finding out there. Uh, and that it's all fake and it's all a charade. So, so there's some words that I wrote down that I want to ask you. What is a swap? Well, like for the purpose of like a credit default swap, it's just buying like insurance on the bond. Why would this woman's interest rate go up so high? Basically, these mortgages were what is called adjustable rate mortgages, which was that the mortgage rate can reset at any rate, depending on where interest rates are at the current time. So let's say they were in a low interest rate environment, and they got a mortgage that where they had to pay, you know, 3% annually. And then, you know, the next year, we entered a high interest rate environment, which could happen as you start seeing defaults, um, and the interest rate could reset to 12%. And all of a sudden, um, like something that you thought was affordable is completely unaffordable. And you know, you're paying more than the value of the home. And it makes sense to just abandon the home altogether rather than to keep paying interest on the mortgage, which is what we see. I mean, that's what could happen with it. Exactly. And I feel like that's basically what negative carry is. It's the idea that like holding an asset is costing you more money than you would be earning on it would be my guess. So what, how is an adjustable, why would someone take that mortgage? Um, I think that people didn't anticipate that interest rates were going to move as much as they did. It's not a good idea to do an adjustable rate mortgage. Like if you ask a conservative person, you know, they want like a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. And that's, you know, something you can, you know what you're getting. And I guess it also, I mean, I guess one possible like value of an adjustable rate mortgage is if you're buying a home in like an extremely high interest rate time, you know, like during, you know, Reagan's presidency or whatever, and you don't want to commit to paying a 15% interest rate for 30 years. And that's, scenario, maybe an adjustable rate mortgage is good because you're hoping interest rates actually go down. Oh, but, interesting. And it's also, it's cheap. It's cheaper. Like a fixed rate mortgage is going to cost you more money because you're getting the certainty of knowing what your interest rate is for 30 years. Right. I said interesting, which is a pun. Uh, right. And so the, <laughs> the, the stripper says, well, that's how I only had to put 5% down, which I think is part of what was a 5% down. So that's also an insane thing. It's like, you know, if you buy, if you get a mortgage on a home and you only have to put 5% down, it's like nothing. You're that's basically what... taking out all this debt that you're never going to get to pay back and at an interest rate you can't afford. So of course you just abandon the, the home. You have, you have no equity invested basically. Right. And they want, and so she's able to own all these properties and they want, um, yeah, she doesn't actually own the properties though. She the just bank has does, mortgages yeah. on them. Basically. And that's yeah. a huge, that's a really good point. That's a huge point. Basically, what is happening is that these people have this idea of owning a home as being successful, being, you know, being a landlord, renting out, having real estate properties. Um, all of it is like, I'm successful. I'm set up. You know, they've been told the American dream of buying a home, owning a home. I, I work this job so I can buy a home so I can own a home. Um, but you're right. They don't actually own them. If they put 5% down, they have no equity in them. And the the bank owns the house really more than they do. Um, so I think that was part of it was everyone pre the crash had this idea, especially in these places like Nevada and Florida, 
that are not, you know, big, big cities, they they maybe had more of an idea of like the suburban dream uh, that they that was played on. There was there was, you know, they were tricked, essentially. I think that that point is actually what gets gets to the heart of the entire shift in mortgages as an asset class, because when mortgage bonds were originally originated, it was a time when Americans would try to have one home. That was the American dream. And it was the most, they would never miss a mortgage payment. You know, they had a 50% down payment on the home. Like the first thing that came out of their income was paying their mortgage payment. And there was a pride and just like a culture in, you know, your home being, your mortgage being like that precious asset, that precious instrument. And then for whatever reason, and possibly because mortgage loans became so easy to get, whereas they used to not be so easy to get, people didn't care as much about it. And they, you know, and so the the idea of a mortgage just became a much less, you know, meaningful asset in American culture. Yeah, that's, that's very, that's a good point. It's very astute. It's almost like you're uh, brilliant. (laughs) Okay, so then... We run into, I mean, so then I just wrote down so many conflicts of interest. So many. (laughs) We run into, uh, they're in Vegas. We run into the whole thing with Karen Gilliam about, um, wanting to be, the SCC doesn't really investigate anything. By the way, those Vegas conferences were huge. And my team continued to go to those Vegas conferences for years, even when, you know, the American Securitization Forum was doing nothing at that point. What were the conferences like? like, You know, I unfortunately never got to go because I was too junior, but some of my most traumatic experiences were in like around preparing my team to go to the conference, like even just like making like restaurant reservations, everybody, they had to take out every single player in the industry. You know, it's like dinner with Standard & Poor's Monday, dinner with Moody's Tuesday, dinner with, you know, the model lines, meeting this investor, meeting this insurer. Like it was a lot of networking, basically. Ironically, in Vegas, even though every single one of these players I'm naming was, you know, based in New York City. What is this all just this is just wasting money for show. This is just putting on a show. I mean, you could say that about any conference, I suppose, that, you know, it's sort of a pointless boondoggle. But, (laughs) you know, you could also argue that there's some value in meeting people face to face or meeting people in like a social circumstance versus in an office or blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I mean, conferences are generally boondoggles, right? Why was it so traumatizing? Um, (laughs) So part of something that I haven't discussed is that when you're a junior banker, you're really put through the ringer and there's like a lot of hazing that goes on. And one of the things that my boss made me do and there was just a lot of planning their schedule, like the schedules. And one of the things my boss made me do was like, he would literally call me and be like, I'm in Caesar's palace. I'm standing here. I want you to call the concierge and I'm trying to get to this room. I want them to describe to you how I'm going to walk from where I am to the room that I'm in. So I'm in New York. This person's in Vegas at the hotel. They want me to describe to them how to get from one place to the next in a hotel where I'm not existing by having on the other line, the concierge that they don't want to talk to, who's describing to me exactly where they can, how they can get to the conference room from, you know, the casino floor. Why? So it's like that type of thing. <laughs> they were mean. I don't know. What, what sort um, of hazing? It's hazing? It's hazing. What? I mean, just like, yeah, just like making you do insane shit constantly and be available at all hours to answer questions while they're in Vegas. Why did you want to do this? As, as soon as I got there, I 
decided I didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to do it because, well, now we're going to get into my psychology. I wanted to be a comedy writer, but I thought that that was too risky of a career. Ha! And I was... <laughs> And I was an economics major and, you know, it was sort of just like, oh, wow, I could go work at this stable bank and get this great job and make a lot of money. And then if I decide I wanted to do comedy, it would be much easier to transition to that in theory than it would be for me to do comedy for a few years and then try to become an investment banker. It'll be harder to get a professional job after doing that. And so I took this stable job thinking, you know, oh, this is the safe bet. And then as soon as I got there, the entire world imploded, like while I was in investment banking training. And then I also realized that I didn't have like the right uh, disposition for it, I would say. I didn't care that much about winning. I didn't care that much about money. I didn't, you know, I thought some of the stuff was interesting and challenging. And I liked a lot of the people I worked with. And, you know, I don't want to sound like somebody who like, you know, drank the Kool-Aid or whatever, but I did like the culture at Goldman. It was a lot of smart people who I, you know, enjoyed working with. And, um, but I instantly didn't want to work there. And the only reason I stayed was because we, our entire economy collapsed and it, it felt crazy to quit a job. So I sort of, my parents like to say that I stayed until the bonuses were going to get good again and then instantly quit and moved on. Oh. <laughs> so oh. I never even made that much money there, but you know, I stayed, I stayed until the economy recovered basically. You, and then the hazing was just like allowed like HR was like, yeah, fuck, yes. w- fuck with them. HR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, well, that brings me to my next thing, which is. My- I mean, illegal hazing, illegal hazing was not allowed, but any psychological torture, sure. Be my guest. Oh, my God. Okay, well, so Marissa Tomei gives me gives us the line. Saints don't live on Park Avenue. Which uh, leads into what you were saying, which is... I bet there are some cancer doctors on Park Avenue. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll take that bet. Um, but so, I mean, did you? it's like a job where people are just allowed to be shitty to you and emotionally torture you and you just have to be like, okay, yeah. and move on. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems right for <laughs> handling all of our money and our entire economy. Um, but don't so then, forget, I've also worked in late night comedy, so let's not glorify ourselves too much outside of the world. That's true. Thing. That's also hazing. <laughs> you know, it's almost like uh, male-dominated industries are bad. Okay, so then... <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so then we meet... Uh, so then we have a, a scene with Selena Gomez and with the father of economics, and they are talking about synthetic CDOs, which basically are CDOs where there's a side bet. So if Selena keeps winning at the craps table, then the people or the blackjack table, then the people behind her bet on her winning. Then the people behind those people bet on those people winning. And it goes back, 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 back. That becomes a synthetic CDO. Um, and then uh, all these people lose off of one bet, which is terrifying. So then I- next scene that happens, I wrote down go to the press question mark because at this point all of them know that this is happening but nobody I'm like why aren't you warning anyone there's one scene of Charlie calling his mom and freaking out but she doesn't believe him and then uh, they do eventually go to the Wall Street Journal after in April 2007 after they realize this this is all starting and the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter is like this is gonna burn my rep I made a lot of friends on Wall Street in order to report on them 
I have a kid. I have a wife in grad school. Uh, I'm not going to get involved in this because I don't want to, which is a whole problem with journalism. And it leads into today where you have access to your sources and you need to keep those sources happy. So you don't want to report on anything that will upset them. And he says the line, should I just make a headline? We're all fucked. And um, and Charlie and Jamie are like, yeah, you should. So it's this thing now where people are starting to know about this, but they're not warning the average person. They're not helping them. And then once it all starts, people start shorting themselves, which I think is what you were talking about with Goldman. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, it's funny. I mean, this what as you described this scene with the Wall Street Journal reporter, it's also making me think like, but what could have been done? You know, yeah. it was like if people knew this was happening, it was too late. The products already existed and they were all defaulting. And even if, you know, people found out about it a couple of months earlier, what would have happened? Well, a couple of the large financial institutions would have been better suited to protect themselves. Would individuals have benefited? No. You know, maybe, a, you know, maybe be Lehman Brothers if they had been tipped mm. off in a way, you know, could still exist. But, you know, I, you know, I don't know if press at this point could have saved anybody. It feels like it was sort of too late at this point. Do you think if in 2005, Michael Burry had gone to the press, it would have made any differences? Or they probably would have also thought he was crazy and said the same thing. I'm not going to burn my reputation on this. Well, it's funny because it sort of reminds me of like COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, if you stave off a problem, like if people were saying COVID was really bad and everybody stayed home and prevented it from getting bad, everybody would be like, well, that was stupid. It wasn't even that bad, you know? So the problem with people (laughs) is that if you stop or prevent something from happening, the assumption is that something bad was never going to happen in the first place. So if somehow early on before all of these assets were issued, um, this was all stopped, or if regulators had said, you can't do synthetic CDOs, you can't do CDOs, the rating agencies need to be stopped. Like there's a lot of different ways mortgage originators need to be stopped. They have to be held to the same standards they used to be held to. There was a lot of bad players in this market. And if, you know, those bad behaviors had been stopped, Mm -hmm. then yeah, this, you know, never would have happened. But everybody got so loose because there was so much money to be made. That's what there's a part where they're talking about how they're not going to devalue the ratings are not going to get devalued until it's off the books. Um, So it becomes like they're waiting for this crash, but it's not happening, even though the the, um, bonds themselves are getting devalued, the mortgages are getting devalued, because they're not willing yet to say, oh, this is actually losing Uh, is this actually going to get a worse rating? Because the problem with this is that entire pension funds and banks and portfolios, their entire investment strategy is based on the rating. Right. So if you start saying, oh, their AAA assets are actually rated double B, then, you know, their collateral is all out of whack. And it's a massive, massive problem for everybody. So they wanted to sort of stave off all of the ramifications of a downgrade, I think. But even though the downgrade was, was warranted. Fake. Yeah, it was it's fake. Like, right. I mean, it was like the AAA rating was meaningless, basically. And people believed, the average person believed in that rating. Well, the average person probably didn't give a shit about bond ratings or have anything to do with this. And it's just the unfortunate like sufferer as a result of it existing. But um, all investors and pension funds and all of those systems very much rely on like, for example, let's say you're the California, you know, teacher pension fund and you want to be really secure, you say, we only want to invest in AAA assets, Mm -hmm. right? And so let's say you have this whole portfolio of AAA assets, and then they all get downgraded. It's like, well, then what? Well, you have 
to immediately sell all these assets off your book. Well, where does your capital go? You have nothing else to invest in. Is anything AAA? Like it's basically like all these portfolio managers then have all of these cascading effects as a result of these downgrades. Um, that makes sense. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, and it's that's why they keep saying it's like a ripple effect through the economy because everything is sort of being held up by the same faulty system. So then uh, we go to 2008. Mark Baum is up against Bruce Miller and Bruce Miller is like saying, I will buy more Bear Stern stock. You know, I'm, you know, whatever. And this at this point, the movie kind of pits Wall Street guys against our antiheroes, even though I wrote down they are also Wall Street guys. So the thing is, is that they are, and I wrote down, they're all bad guys, but they can always take care of their own. Because what is going on is all of these, you're talking about all these ripple effects, right? But Charlie calls and he's worried about his mother and and his family's retirement fund, right? He's trying to warn her. So he does that. She doesn't listen to him, presumably. But at the end of the day, he makes 80 million from all of this. So when he makes 80 million, he can just give some to his parents. The parents are fine because it's like, well, Republican women will still be able to get abortions. Like it's that kind of thing of like the people around, everyone's fucked, but the people around you and the rich people, and we worry about Charlie's mom, but we don't need to because she's going to be fine. And so there's like this one scene where Brad Pitt, they're celebrating and Brad Pitt turns to them and says, don't be celebrating because if you guys are right and this happens, um, people will lose their jobs. People will be homeless. The economy will collapse. People will lose their retirements and their homes. Like, this is not funny. This is not fun or funny. The movie kind of is still having us root for them, but they're all Wall Street guys. Yeah, they're definitely all Wall Street guys. I mean, maybe they don't work directly on Wall Street like some of the bankers do, but yes, they're all big players in the capital markets. I think what the, it's a funny nuance. What these investors see as the difference between them and Wall Street guys is that they're nimble, whereas Wall Street, big banks, slow moving, like behemoths that have these, it takes a lot to change their mind and it takes like capital committees and it takes huge groups of people in order for Wall Street to be able to change or respond to a massive event. Whereas yes, yes, these are all Wall Street investors, but these smaller places think of themselves as better because they can respond more quickly to the markets and they're not, you know, beholden to they're not public companies, et cetera, et cetera. But I, yeah, so I think it's more like that's more of the distinction to me than that they're somehow like holier than thou or better, like morally better. I'm sure they think of themselves as smarter than the investment banks, but I don't think they think of themselves as more moral than the investment bank. They think of themselves as smarter. And perhaps Mark Baum thinks of himself as more moral because his whole character is like giving this speech about this is going to affect people. This is this is bad. You guys are bad, which like I guess every film needs like a quote unquote moral center. But yeah. So then there's this interesting thing where they show people getting fired. They show uh, them talking about like, you know, being devastated, all these bankers. They show the the man from the house who who was worried about his landlord not paying rent. They show him and his family living in his car now. They show tents for homelessness. Um, Jeremy Strong from Succession playing essentially his character from Succession. <laughs> Uh, in this part, he literally says, fuck off. Uh, he 
is uh, is talking about, we need to sell now, Mark. We need to sell. And Mark is having a moral quandary about the whole thing because he is our moral center. And he says they're going to blame immigrants and poor people. And then eventually, Brian Gosling, I think, says teachers in an over, a, a voiceover. And then Mark is realizing... On the phone with Jeremy Strong, he's realizing uh, the banks knew that bailouts would come from taxpayer money. So can you talk about what what the bank bailouts were? Sure. I mean, I think that there were just some banks and insurance companies that were so long, these rotten subprime assets, that they wouldn't have been able to continue to exist if the government hadn't given them capital, basically, to sustain themselves. Obviously, AIG is one of the biggest examples of that. And as a result, and if these um, institutions had gone under without a government bailout, then there would have been an even more disastrous effect on the economy because every other thing that they insured would go under and the ripple effect wouldn't have been, I mean, to say that it was contained is generous, but the bailouts basically contained the damage Basically, it could have been a whole lot worse if these institutions hadn't been bailed out. The reason that um, they say it's a problem that they were bailed out is because, I mean, you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, too big to fail, which Mm -hmm. is basically like, if this institution goes under, the economy will go into a great, another great depression. So they knew that so they could take on more risk than they otherwise might have because they knew that they would get bailed out because they were too important to not get bailed out. So it leads to riskier behavior if you're expecting government bailout because, you know, you do things that you wouldn't have done otherwise. And the bailout money comes from us, the taxpayers, and it doesn't necessarily I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that it it made things it made it so that it wasn't worse because there's like this then this montage with Ryan Gosling talking about and then the SEC investigated and all these people went to jail and the banks were broken up. And, you know, at one point, one character is like, this is the end of capitalism. And then he's like, just kidding. None of that happened. One guy went to jail. That's it. Uh, and 8 million people lost their jobs, 6 million people lost their homes. Was it good that the banks had a bailout or or would it have been? I mean, look, yes, <laughs> <sighs> it is good that the banks had a bailout. It, it's bad that they had to get to the point where they were bailed out. They acted badly. I don't think there was an option to have a bailout. I don't think there was an option for all the stimulus that took place after that. I do think that that was necessary. Like we recovered as, an, as a country thanks to what Obama did, you know, he he took swift action. He instituted bailouts. He instituted like lots of different relief programs across the board. And because of that, we were able to bounce back. We could have still been in a Great Depression now, frankly, mm-hmm. if, you know, there hadn't been a swift government response to sort of s- stop the bleeding, frankly. But then do you think that they just went right back to doing all the st- same stuff? No, it's definitely not the same because people are aware of what went wrong and wouldn't do it again. Are, is there some other new, you know, asset class of the du jour that's causing a problem now? Is Could that have been cryptocurrency? I mean, I always say that this experience of working it, at Goldman in mortgages during the financial crisis has made me just a generally more risk averse person and more aware of things that can go wrong. And so my whole career sort of started with the awareness that like everything can go wrong instantly. I do think that as as an industry, the banking industry is much more aware of that, like what they call one in a 100 year event is actually not one in a 100 years and like things happen all the time. 
time that can completely disrupt the economy. So I think that in terms of like, you know, what, ha- what happened on that level in the housing market? No, I don't think that that would happen again. Um, will there be a new asset class where that could happen too? And there could be another bubble? Absolutely. Will there be another bubble? Of course. Um, hopefully it won't be that bad because the banks did put a lot of stop guards in place to, you know, try to stave that off. Yes. And then it it ends with talking about in 2015, bespoke tranche opportunity, which is basically another CDO, right? I mean, a tranche opportunity sounds like a CDO, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think CDOs do still exist. Yeah. I just think that they're different. You know, there's more awareness of the underlying collateral. The loan to values are different. You know, maybe they're riskier. Maybe only certain people are allowed to invest in them instead of pension funds and hedge funds. Maybe they're for, I mean, instead of like pension funds, like who, I don't know. I have, I actually haven't paid that close sure. attention since 2012 when I, when I left the industry, but um I presume that, you know, people aren't blindly investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the subprime CDOs. That would be my guess, but that's not happening anymore. You're right. But there is probably another bubble <laughs> in another area coming through. And then it tells us that Michael sure. Berry invests in the, a commodity and that commodity is water, which is something my my partner actually had said, Michael Burry invests in one commodity or whatever. And then it like hadn't shown it yet. And my partner went water and then it popped up water. And I was like, why did you say that? And they were like, that's just, it just seems obvious to me. And I couldn't really figure out why it was so obvious to them. It's this idea too, that like the doomsday prepper guy, Ben um, Rickert is like, he also like lives off the grid still. That's what it says in the addendum. And then it's so funny to see in this film, he's where he's using hand sanitizer. He's wearing a mask on an airplane. There's only one other person wearing a mask on an airplane, an Asian person, which we already kind of, that was the the vibe at the time. So he's wearing an an N95 or a, a very strong mask on an airplane. He's, you know, saying you need to grow your own food. And then it's kind of, it was kind of jarring and and because he's seen as this person who's like knows all the bad things that could happen. And then, you know, five years after this film comes out is COVID and everybody is wearing the mask and everybody is using hand sanitizer. And not to say that this guy could predict COVID or that he, you know, knew anything, but it seems like he was like planning for, well, there's going to be bad stuff ahead. Planning for the worst, you know, planning planning for for that one in a hundred year event, which is if everybody had been this disaster in the economy would have happened. Well, thank you so much for... But that's not what Americans <laughs> do. <Sorry. laughs> I mean, God. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. Where can people find you and more about you? Um, You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Claire G. Friedman is my handle. Hopefully one day you'll see a thing that me and Claire are working on. But also, if you watch The Big Short and you have thoughts, please write in. I am uh, GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com. Also, you can uh, leave a voice memo there or you can call in at 844-474-4040 and let us know. Um, And you can also follow us on Discord, Instagram, Patreon, TikTok, and leave us a five-star Apple review. And also, please, if you have seen The Big Short, write in. We'll do a mailbag where we will talk about what you guys think of The Big Short. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for having me. Done. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 